<laughs> okay. Good morning. How are my Manitou Springs friends? Good. Good to see you. Uh, yeah, remain standing. That would be okay. And if you're not standing and you're able to stand, please stand. Uh, two things real quick. One, I just love being here. So I'm so honored, Pastor Joe, that you'd ask me to come back. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Andrew. Uh, I'm one of the teaching pastors up at the North Congregation. And I love coming down here. I have a special place in my heart for small congregations. I grew up in a smaller congregation. We pastored a smaller congregation in Denver for a while. And uh, I think that there is nothing more important than, than that can happen in a city than that a small group of people come together in the name of Jesus to build each other up in love and to bless the city in the name of Jesus. And so you guys, I'm just so moved by you. And I, I, you need to know, I pray for you daily. You know, we live over on the east side of town and I have this little run that I go on where I kind of come up around the corner and I can see Manitou Springs from my run. So way over on the east side. And I always just pray, Lord, give them a Pentecost. Like rip the roof off that place and pour out your spirit and bless that city in Jesus' name. And so as I'm with you this morning in worship, I got tears in my eyes thinking about what God's doing here and just feeling the spirit moving among you. So that's inspiring to me. The second thing is that you need to know. So uh, we got here at about 9.30 this morning and I was in the little cafeteria downstairs. And Tim Hockersmith over here, he said, well, where's your, uh, he said, where's your I Love Manitou Spring shirt? And I said, I don't have one. And he said, well, I'll go get you one. And he said, and I said, well, if you can find me an I Love Manitou Springs t-shirt, I will wear it every time I preach from now until Jesus comes back. So. In good faith, Tim appeared three minutes later with a t-shirt. And so now we're obligated. We're covenanted in this relationship, aren't we? Let's pause for a word of prayer, and then I'm going to read the text of Scripture. Remain standing with me. Oh, we say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Mary's child, Son of God, Son of man. You're ours. <laughs> You're ours. You've pledged yourself to us. And as the centerpiece of the Father's rescue effort, you have pledged us to your Father, and you cannot fail. And so we worship you, and we exalt you, and we praise you in this place this morning. We thank you that you are triumphing in us, whether we know it or not. And we pray that you would do it all the more this morning. Come and let these words this morning, let them break open all that needs to be broken open in us. We pray that the text of scripture in its reading and in its preaching, that it would be a transfiguration of the risen Christ. We ask that all that is in us that's set against the kingdom of God and the good pleasure of God, that it would be thrown down. We ask that you would take captive every thought in this place and make it obedient to Jesus Christ the Lord. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would burn away in us everything that doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. We're asking that you would burn us right down to faith. To all that we are is just a yes to you and confidence in Jesus and a desire to be conformed to his image and his likeness. Come, we say, Holy Spirit, come. We need you, we need you, we need you, we need you, we need you. Pray that the words of the preacher this morning would speak of the glory of Jesus. We pray 
that are coming to the table would be an encounter with the risen Christ. We ask that we would be transformed in this whole thing. Come. We say, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, listen, hear the word of the Lord from the apostle Paul. Remain standing, please. Paul writes, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion and make my joy complete by being like-minded, everybody say like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, thanks be to God, and amen, and hallelujah, and whatever else you want to throw in there, amen. You can be seated. This is one of the great passages of scripture in all the New Testament, isn't it? So beautiful. Paul's little ethical exhortation here, an exhortation to the community followed by this hymn. And one of the things that Paul has been exhorting the Philippian believers to do is to remain in a spirit of unity with one another. Paul, as you know, is writing from what is most likely a Roman prison. He's writing to his friends at Philippi, 800 or so miles away. He can't be with them, so he can't leverage the strength of his physical presence to try to keep them together. So he exhorts them to stay together in unity somehow. If you have your finger in your Bibles, you can go back to verse 27 of chapter one. Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one person for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this, he says, is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. And so Paul says, this is what you're going to do. In my absence, what I want you to do is to conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what does that manner worthy look like? Well, it looks like contending as one person for the faith of the gospel. It looks like standing together in one spirit. And Paul sees that there's something at work in the Philippian community that is so firm and so solid and so lasting that even if the secular culture of Philippi makes fun of them and mocks them and derides them, the unity of the Philippian believers is something that's lasting. He says it's a sign to them. You guys standing together as one community. He says it's a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. So Paul has waxed eloquent on the need for unity in the Philippian community. And now he gives some practical exhortation. What is that going to look like? What are you going to do? 
He says, well, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Everybody say selfish ambition. Everybody say vain conceit. He says none of that in the church, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So, so far, so good. He's telling us, look, don't be jerks in the community, all right? Like value other people more than yourselves. Don't walk into the community of faith just thinking about who you are and what you want to accomplish, but think about other people. For the love of God, put other people first. And so we're tracking with him on this. And then all of a sudden in verse five, Paul pivots and he starts telling this story of Jesus. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind. I love the old translation says, let this mind be in you that also was in Christ Jesus. And what was that mind? That he was in very nature God and yet he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself, what's the word there? Nothing. But taking the very nature of a, servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He what? He he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a, wait, what? Wait, what? Who, who, who is the God that's worshiped in the church? See, that's the real issue that Paul wants to put front and center to the Philippian believers. We worship a peculiar God, don't we? The the God that's worshiped in the Judeo-Christian tradition, he is a peculiar God. And I think it's fashionable sometimes for people to say, they make comparisons between the God who's worshiped in the Judeo-Christian tradition and other gods and other deities and other mythologies. That's a fashionable thing to have happen in academic circles and in secular culture. You'll hear people sometimes talk about, for instance, the way that the writings of Genesis, the first couple chapters of Genesis, compare to some ancient mythologies about the gods. One of them is the Enuma Elish. You ever heard about the Enuma Elish? The Enuma Elish is this Babylonian creation myth. And so they compare the Enuma Elish to Genesis and they go, man, there's so many similarities here. There's like a deity and there's like creation and there's like human beings. And clearly the Bible must have been borrowing from the Enuma Elish. And all of that is true so far as it goes. But do you know what the gods in the Enuma Elish are like? You know what that story is? It's a story of how two gods, a male god and a female god, got in a fight one day. And this, these two gods, they had all of these children and the children who were their gods, those Those gods who ruled sort of the heavens and the earth were being noisy one day. And so the male God decided, I hate all of my kids. So I'm going to kill my kids. And the female God says, no, this is a terrible thing. So she goes to warn the children. Dad's in a bad mood. He's going to kill you. So run, flee, hide for your lives, you know, right? And so the kids then decide, one of the kids actually decides, rather than fleeing for our lives, what we should do is we should kill dad. And you thought your family was dysfunctional. So the kids decide to kill dad. 
And they do. And mom is mad about it because she actually did kind of like dad, you know? And then a huge civil war breaks out. And eventually one of the deities, Marduk, decides to slay his mom, Tiamat, and from her body, the Enuma Elish says, he made the heavens and the earth in this violent, bloody battle. And he took all of those that were on Tiamat's side and he enslaved them made them run the heavens and the earth as slaves. And then, of course, that was an untenable situation. The gods can't be enslaved, so they created human beings so that they could liberate the gods, and human beings then would be the slaves of the gods. What? <laughs> what a depraved myth that is. And it's so different, isn't it, from the scriptures. It's so different from the story that's told in Genesis, the scriptural narrative would have us understand that God does not create the heavens and the earth out of a fight. And he doesn't do it even to fill up some need or lack in himself. And sometimes you hear Christians actually talk this way. You hear Christians kind of wax sentimental about God and they go, why did God create? Well, God was lonely. God wasn't lonely. The Christian tradition says that God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect and complete fellowship that has no lack, that has no lack. So when God creates, he doesn't create because he's trying to fill up something in himself. He doesn't create because he's angry. He doesn't create because he's needy. He creates because he is love. And when he creates us, he creates us therefore out of Love, love, according to Thomas Aquinas, wills the good of the other and wills it absolutely. That means that God's creation doesn't do something for him. It doesn't make him feel all warm and fuzzy inside, but he creates us in order to will the maximum possible good for us. It's extra, it's excess, it's bonus, it's gratuitous, it's God. He's a peculiar God. He makes us just to bless us. He makes us just to love us. He makes us just to rise up in fellowship with him and love him. He makes us so that our lives can be and be good. And that's what he does in Genesis. He takes the man and the woman and he creates them in his own image and in his own likeness. And he sets them in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. He gives them everything that they could ever need. And then he walks with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. You get the sense that God in the scriptures is not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about others. God is bent towards making the lives of other people better. And even when his people fall, into sin and into exile, even when they fall into trouble, God remains committed to them. And he had every reason. When we defected from God in the Garden of Eden, when we said no to him, we turned our backs on the life, God had every reason to wipe his hands of us, to rid the earth of us, and instead he doesn't. But what he does is he keeps rescuing us, and he keeps delivering us, and he keeps lifting up our lives and making them better. The Lord says to his people in Leviticus chapter 26, he says that I will look on you with favor and I will make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant, everybody say covenant, with you. And you will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new and I will put my dwelling place among you 
and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And then listen to this. He says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and I enabled you to walk with heads held high. Brothers and sisters, that's our God. The God who, when we fall into trouble, he descends into our trouble and he breaks the bars of our yoke. And then he says, put your shoulders back and walk straight and keep your chin up because you belong to me. He leverages his strength to make us great. He leverages his strength to make us dignified again. And we've been undignified by our own foolish choices and by the circumstances of sin that we are born into. This is our God. The church serves a peculiar God, doesn't it? And if we had any doubt that God was like this, we would need to look no further than Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is Israel's God-made flesh. And that means that when Jesus walked among us and lived among us, he did nothing for himself. You don't see Jesus in the Gospels beating his chest. You don't see Jesus in the Gospels walking around with pride. You don't see Jesus in the Gospels seeking himself, but Jesus always exclusively and only ever seeks the good of others. And he has every reason as God of very God to make us his servants, to make us his slaves, to make us bow down and kiss his feet and kiss his ring for us to grovel. But he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus comes to the lowliest among us and he picks us up and he makes us better. Jesus exhausts his strength to get us to see ourselves as the God of Israel sees us. Jesus with his disciples the night that he was betrayed, Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, the scripture says that a dispute rose among the disciples as to which of them was to consider to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them, they call themselves benefactors. He says, but you're not to be like that. Instead, let the greatest among you be as the youngest. And let the one who rules be like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. See, when you see this about Jesus, you see the very heart of God. And I, I'm just here to say to you this morning, you can put the slide up on the screen, that the church worships a God who categorically puts others first. This is what it means for God to be God. It's not something that God does that's out of character for God. It's not like God makes an exception to the rule with us. The rule with God is that God puts others first. And do you understand that? Even in the being of God, this is so. That the Father glorifies the Son. And do you know what the Son does? He glorifies the Father. And the, the Son gives the Spirit. You know what the Spirit does? The Spirit magnifies Christ Jesus, who magnifies the Father. But then the Father and the Son, they keep pointing at the Spirit. And so the, the eternal Trinity dances in deference. They seek one another. They seek each other. And because of that, their light is bright. And when they create us, what they do is they shine the light on us. The God that we worship is a God that categorically puts others 
first and we are most like God, we most image our God when we do the same. And so that is what Paul is exhorting the Philippian community to do and to be is to be the images of God that you are. As God has raised you up and given you dignity, now you lower yourself. You prefer the other. You give yourselves away for the other. And don't call attention to yourself in so doing. Don't make a big deal about it. But you exhaust yourself as God exhausts himself for us. Image God. I've been in the church all my life. And... um, I've seen this over and over again. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, I think, when it happens. I grew up in this church in central Wisconsin. It was born out of the Jesus movement of the 60s and the 70s, this um, just red-hot, non-denominational, charismatic church. And we grew pretty big, seven or 800 people. It's pretty big in central Wisconsin. Our city was about 18,000 people. And and we were kind of the hot new thing for a while. We'd have these famous traveling ministers would come through. And one of the things I remember about belonging to that church was that all of us were so very preoccupied with what was happening on the stage, you know, and in the service. And who's preaching and what are they doing? And everything amazing up here. And when I look back on that experience of growing up in that church, now I know with the hindsight of faith and a little bit of maturity, I know that the real heroes of that church were not any of the people that were ever on the stage. But the real heroes of that church were all of the people who labored away behind the scenes trying to make everybody else's life better. Guys like Paul Osowski, Paul Ranar, he was the chief of our maintenance crew. And Paul just day and night was there changing all of the light bulbs and mopping up all the dirty messes and making sure that the carpet was clean and everything was good. Paul exhausted himself for the sake of our little community up in Marshfield. And it was a beautiful thing. I think about all of the people that I grew up around who prayed day and night for that community. And we were all so impressed by what was happening here. But what made that community go were those people who were pouring their lives out like a drink offering for the sake of that community. We pastored, like I mentioned, in Denver for a number of years, 2009 to 2017. And for a while, we were the hot new thing in Denver, and everybody was really interested in what we were doing and the cool little worship experience that we created and our neat model and all of that. But the real heroes of our community were guys like Tony Hornsby and Chuck Wilson, guys who showed up week in and week out to leverage their strength to make the community rise. Tony was one of those guys who you just couldn't like we, he was, uh, Tony was always like setting up and tearing down for us and doing all this stuff behind the scenes. And I remember, At one point, I was in staff meeting with our little staff, and I said, you know, guys, we can't just have Tony Hornsby, like, working every Sunday for the church. Like, that isn't right. We need to tell Tony that Tony, sometimes he just needs to sit in church and just receive, you know? And so we said that to Tony. Tony, you can't do it every, you just got to take a break every once in a while. And Tony, you know, out of, I don't know, respect for his leaders or something, he sat there, and he looked like we'd killed his puppy or something. (laughs) We told him that Christmas would be no more, you know, because Tony found so much, all of his joy was in giving himself away. For others, the church rises in this way. We've been at New Life now for two and a half years. And this church, man, and there are some dazzling personalities and some dazzling gifts in this church, and God is doing some publicly amazing things. But I'm telling you, I know this now because I've been around you all for two and a half years. It's you folks that make the church go. It's you folks that make the church great. 
It's that selfless, sacrificial, others preferring service that's caused this community to be what it is for 35 years. And I'm constantly surprised. One of the great joys of my pastorate here is walking around this community and every single week, I meet so many people who have been in this community, part of the new life world for 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 plus years. And they'll say through all the ups and downs and the highs and lows of this community, we've been here behind the scenes praying and we're just so eager to see what God will do. I'm saying that the church works in that way. When we don't come into church going, da, 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 here I am, put me to work. What's my ministry? Do you have a space for me? But when we come into the church, like Jesus enters the world, Jesus who enters humbly, Jesus who enters preferring others, Jesus who set aside heaven's glory and took the form of what? A servant. That's how the world rises. And we have this thing now that we do in our culture, we talk about self-actualization is the big thing in our culture, self-actualization. That what every human being is obligated to do in some way is to seek out those relationships and those experiences that will allow them to achieve their highest potential, the actualized self, right? And so it's magnificently self-absorbed. But the problem is that it gets into the water supply of the church, doesn't it? And so then what happens is you have people come to the church and they think, that the church is supposed to be yet one more occasion, yet one more institution, yet one more opportunity that allows them to achieve the fullness of their selves, actualized. I'm saying to you this morning that the church does not exist for that. It does not exist for your self-actualization. Or if it does, it doesn't do so in that way. But the only way that we achieve ourselves according to the gospel is by losing ourselves. That's, that's how, that's how. We have these people coming in the church now and they just expect that the church serves them, you know? They figured the self-actualization culture, they figured out what they've, they've done, they've taken the strengths finder test, you know? These are my top five strengths. And they figured out their Myers-Briggs, you know, they know what that is. And then they've also done their Enneagram work. I think Enneagram now. And they come in and they go, this is my top strength and this is my Myers-Briggs and this is my Enneagram. Do you have a ministry now for me? And they go, well, you could do this ministry over there. And they go, well, that would violate my threeness a little bit. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure if I should. <laughs> Sometimes you just gotta grab a mop, you know? And just forget all that crap. Sorry, it's not a very churchy thing to say. But man, like, when are you gonna forget yourself? Because <laughs> that's the joy. That's the joy. the joy. The joy is when the personality is no longer a mirror that we're looking in all the time. The joy is when your personality becomes a window that you look out from to see the world. And to the extent that we're drawn into Jesus Christ, ourselves are no longer mirrors, but they're windows that through them we see the world and we see the need of the world and the need of the people in front of us. And so we give ourselves away to other people. And when we do that, we are like Jesus. And we know that Jesus is conquering in us 
Listen again to Paul's words in verse three. He says, do nothing. Everybody say, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Can I do a few things out of selfish ambition? No, no, no. Nothing, no things. Do no things, none of the things. You can do none of the things. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, you're gonna value other people above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. What if we did that? What if a church did that? What if every time we walked in the building, what if every time we walked into our small group, what if every time we woke up in the morning and encountered our family, the first thought that we had was not, how can you make my life better? But how can I make your life better? Like, how can I improve your situation? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to help you? What strength do I have that would make this situation better? Brothers and sisters, what if we lived in a church like that? What if we lived in homes like that? What if we lived in a world like that? How would you describe that situation? I've got a word. It would be heaven. Because heaven is wherever the nature of God has conquered in us. That's where heaven is. When Christ Jesus has gained all of the territory in our souls, when he's burned us right down to his own identity, when Christ Jesus has risen up in his fullness in us, that's heaven. That's heaven. And wherever you have selfish ambition and vain conceit, you have not heaven, but you have hell. Hell is selfishness writ large. That's what it is. Hell is self-seeking. Hell is walking into a room and going, how can I use this room to serve me and to make myself great? That is what hell is. And Christ Jesus has entered the hell of our making to turn it into the heaven of his Father's glory. I'm saying that we have to yield to him, which is why Paul says, that let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, when we live this way, the church rises. It becomes beautiful, it becomes true, it becomes good the way that God would have it. Be about a month ago, my family and I were up in the mountains. Uh, I was asked by this church in Denver to lead um, an annual retreat that the church has. They, uh, they use the uh, Frontier Ranch, so the Young Life Ranch up there at Buena Vista, a beautiful place. And they wanted me to lead a few sessions with them, so do some teachings on what does it mean to love and what does it mean to be in community. And it was such a joyful thing. So this is an old Episcopal church founded in the 50s in Denver, Colorado. And uh, about 200 people, 200 or so people up in the mountains. And it was all ages and all demographics and all generations. It's just this perfect, beautiful mix of humanity. And they've done some really hard work in recent years to just kind of get things right in their community. And you could just feel the health in the room. Like these people genuinely love being together. It's like a beautiful thing, heaven on earth. And we met this one lady uh, who had been part of the community, that church, for 58 years. 58 years. 
Who even does that anymore? Those people church hop and church shop, and when they get bored, you know, they move on to the next thing. And this lady, 58 years, she's seen it all in 58 years. She's seen some terrible pastors, and she's seen some amazing pastors. She's seen terrible seasons, and she's seen amazing seasons. She's met brilliant personalities, and she's met horrible personalities. And for 58 years, She's been there praying for that church and lifting that church up. And I sat there talking to her and she's telling her story and she's telling about the church. And I'm just so moved by the beauty of her life and the beauty of this church. And I thought to myself, you know, what does it take to be in the church for 58 years the way that this woman was in the church for 58 years? I know one thing. It takes a lot of death. Like that woman has died 10,000 deaths in that church. You know what I mean? Seeing the church not behaving the way that it should, all of those moments when your selfishness wants to rise up and you have to crucify the flesh, all the times when you were bitterly disappointed in the church or bitterly disappointed with the way that the church was going or the way that people were behaving, the way that in prayer, I'm sure that she carried that and she bled in prayer over the church. If you wanna do this, if you wanna live this way, it doesn't happen by accident. Guys, the joy that we feel in this room this morning is because people sacrifice. It's because people bleed. It's because there are people who are laboring in prayer. It's because people who are, there are people who are taking up the mop. It's because there are people that are serving in the children's ministry down there. It's because people are dying. They're living the long martyrdom. That makes the church good. St. Tertullian in the second century said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He was talking about persecution. But I think that that's not just true of martyrdom per se. I think that that's true of our whole manner of being in the church. That the church grows and flourishes when we're willing to bleed for it. When we're willing to bleed for one another. You'll have to die a thousand deaths if you want to be in the church the way that God would have you be in the church. You're going to have to die to ego. You're going to have to die to selfishness. You're going to have to die to anger. You're going to have to die to rage and hostility. You're going to have to die to your impulse to build walls between you and other people. You'll just have to die. But it's in death that we live. Paul concludes by saying, therefore God exalted this Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is because Jesus exhausted himself unto death that his Father raised him up. And when we're caught up in the vortex of his life, we will be those who exhaust ourselves unto death for others. And God will raise us up, and not just as individuals, but he raises us up together as the living, resurrected body of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus. Are you with me this morning? So my question that I want to lead you, or leave you with as we head into the table, Pastor Joe is going to take us to the table in a moment, is what are you in this for? Why are you in this? Are you in the church so that the church can make your life great and better? Or are you in the church to make everybody else's life great and better? And to the degree that you answer that question one way or the other is the index of how much Jesus has conquered in you. So Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, we say this morning, have mercy on us. Would you just begin to examine your heart? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We thank you that you have come to save us. And your saving of, of us is not, you don't come to save us from suffering. 
You don't come to save us from bleeding. You don't come to save us from crosses, but you save us for your cross. And we pray that this morning you would take us and you would morph us into your life. That you would help us abandon sin and selfishness. And you'd help us take up the cross that is the offering that we make to the world for the glory of God and the good of others. Would you help us with that? We pray that Manitou Springs would rise because of it. We pray that our families would rise because of it. We ask that this whole Front Range region, that it would rise because of it. Grant it, we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, Amen. Amen.